Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, Jessica, one of your co-hosts, and as always, I'm joined by my better pod half, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. We are doing our part two of the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway, and we are going to jump into that in just a minute. But if you'd like to hang out with us on socials, you can do so by going to Three Spooked Girls on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want to hang out with us a little bit more one-on-one-ish, well, kind of one-on-one-ish, but like if you'd like to interact with us on a more regular basis, we are both very active in our Facebook group, Three Spooked Girls Official. It's fun. There's pictures of dogs and cups and mugs and funny videos, and it's a place of happiness and fun. Yeah, for sure. So you can definitely hang out with us in there. If you want to help support the show, you can do that by joining our Patreon. We are at patreon.com backslash three spooked girls, or you can find it in that link tree that's below. Tara's made it fantastically easy. You just click the button and it woo, it takes you away. (laughs) I went to make like a whoosh sound, but for some reason it came out a woo sound. So sorry. (laughs) It's okay. So if you would like to, you can support the show for as little as a dollar. You get an extra bonus episode each month from that tier up. There's more content and more bonuses added. $2 and up tiers. You actually end up getting three extra episodes a month. Two are slaughters. One is the extra. Go up from there. The $5 and up get all of that. Plus Tara's new fabulous haunted grounds, which she talks about spooky haunted things and caffeinated beverages. Yep, yep. I'm saying caffeinated beverages because I don't know if you'll ever go away from coffee. Maybe one day. Maybe leaving the possibility open. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I start bringing Red Bulls. It's fine. <laughs> I love Red Bulls. And $10 and up patrons get to pick an episode that's dedicated to them as a patron select, which we do instead of a stabby every once in a while on a Thursday. And those are always fun. So definitely check out the different options if you want to check that out without having to go to the website. Tara has made a very fantastic little button on our Instagram page where you can learn everything you need to learn and just click through some videos. Mm-hmm. Because this is part two, we are not doing a drink of the week because... For us, it's the same week. For you, there's been some time. We had the live show between then and now. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, hope so too. With that, we're going to head off to our promo break, and then we'll be back with some content. See you in a minute. Hi, and thanks for checking out Drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm Cassidy. And I'm Amanda. And this is a podcast dedicated to the mysterious. Are you into conspiracy theories? True crime? Aliens? The paranormal? 
If so, you might be interested in our podcast, Drinking the Kool-Aid. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Just remember to keep your front door locked, your mind open, and keep keep drinking drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, we hope you enjoyed that promo break as much as we did. We are going to start back in with content on the Green River Killer, aka Gary Ridgeway. Where we left off is we were talking about the police circling around Gary and seeing him as a potential suspect as the killer, but not having substantial physical evidence to be able to link him because of the time frame, because DNA was a thing, but wasn't a thing in the 80s. They could basically be like, well, it's the same blood type. Mm-hmm. Basically, at this point in time, it's in the mid 80s. Gary is still being watched and looked after, but the resources for the police department have dwindled away and they don't have don't have any more money. And so they kind of can't watch him any longer. And it just kind of seemed like the Green River Killer just stopped one day. And it was like magic. Tara, will you tell us about that magical reason he stopped? I will. But before I get into that, I got a couple quick fun facts for you guys. Or Yeah, sure, they could be fun facts. Why not? One is uh, at his pain. So when him and uh, Marsha split up, he started attending this group called Parents Without Partners. And he actually was said to engage with quite a few women during this, but more so one he actually became legit engaged with and was supposed to marry in 1984, but she ended up leaving him for somebody else. So that probably didn't go over too well for him. And also in 1984, Jessica hinted at it in part one, Mr. Theodore Bundy would come up in this case. Now, y'all know who he is. If there is somebody listening who does not know who Ted Bundy is, I don't know how you exist. Please message me. I'd like to know how you don't know who he is. (laughs) Right? So he reached out to the Green River Killer Task Force saying he could help. And we all know... Ted was not, you know, doing this out of the kindness or goodness of his heart because none exists there. And it was essentially kind of like what he did with everything else, trying to buy himself more fucking time to stay relevant and needed to be left alive. When talking with him, he was actually spot on pretty much with everything. He had suggested that the killer most likely revisited his dumping sites to engage in sexual intercourse with the bodies. He told them that, say they find a, quote, fresh grave, that they needed to kind of stake it out and survey and wait for the killer to come back. I mean, it was true. He would come back and stuff, but it was the same thing of Gary slipping through their fingers. And another interesting thing about with the crime scene and stuff, Jessica said they gathered a lot of evidence. Well, part of that, I assume, was because Gary actually liked to contaminate his crime scenes. He would leave gum from other people. He would leave trash, you know, litter and stuff like that everywhere. He would leave cigarette butts that weren't his and things like that to throw them off. And it was also said he had the foresight that if a victim scratched him, he actually clipped their nails and took them with him to avoid them finding the DNA. It's crazy. Yeah, he took a lot of steps. Now, 
and this magical thing. Let's talk about this and what, because there, there's a lull. He was murdering at an alarmingly quick rate. Lots of people. It was just happening and happening and happening. And then it's just like nothing. What the fuck? So there were some additional murders that technically weren't found out about until his like arrest and confession and stuff. But for timeline's sake, I kind of felt like mentioning them here was best. So there was Patricia Barzak, who was murdered on October 17th, 1986. Roberta Hayes on February 7th, 1987. Marta Reeves on March 5th, 1990. Patricia Yellowrobe, January 1998. And three Jane Doe's who they estimated their deaths to have happened in January of 1990. Another one, quote, prior to 1983, May-ish. And then another one sometime between December of 1980 to January of 1984. So a four-year gap there. And you think that's bad enough? This last one, they said a 20-year span of could have been 1973 to 1993. That's crazy. I know. So the reason why he stopped is because of a person. This would be Judith Lynch. And it's kind of going to be a different story compared to the other marriages. So totally night and day. They originally met in a bar in 1985 and they were married by 1988. She also had moved in with him rather quickly in the house he owned. He had purchased that back in 1981. When he was with Judith, he was described as extroverted, always talking with neighbors, and people saw him as just being some harmless, overly friendly dude, basically. He was described as always gardening, which they said he was obsessed with, and he would have garage sales twice a month. So, you know, basic dad kind of thing is what they're trying to say. And Judith actually described him as gentle and caring towards her. She said that they were happy, and she had done, obviously, interviews. She said, quote, we're best friends, and that her husband never hit her or even been mad at her. A detective had asked her, so he's been a good husband to you? And she replied, oh, yes. He'll come through the door and say, hello, I'm home, and a big smile and give me a hug and a kiss and a what's new. He was always happy. He had a smile that would never change. He made me feel like a newlywed every day. End quote. Now, there was an incident she mentions also when she's talking with detectives that randomly one day she found condoms in his drawer and her reaction was kind of interesting. She said she didn't like yell, scream, nothing. She was pissed off, obviously, and figured he was having an affair of some sort. So she went and chopped wood. When I was reading about that, it wasn't exactly clear if she actually confronted him. It didn't seem like she did. But besides that, they seem to have a rather pretty much, quote, normal life. It was noted they moved a few times, but nowhere too far. They lived in Des Moines and Auburn, Washington, which was both still in King County. Because keep in mind, that job he got as soon as he got out of the Navy, he actually worked there up until he got arrested. So he worked there for like 30-something years. But I wanted to kind of like give y'all that little tidbit and stuff. Yeah. So you could be like, what made him stop for a while? So that's that's a huge thing. Now, I am going to kind of switch gears a little bit to talk about investigation stuff. So in 1987, the leadership of the task force for the Green River Killer had changed because, like we said, things were slowing down. They started to shift their focus on leads they already had to try to nix down that list because they had a, a crazy, crazy big list to go through. And basically, if the person wasn't a right fit, they're like, okay, bye. Gary was still on the list. One of the victims, her name was Kim. Apparently, it was kind of like semi-similar to the boyfriend thing of the other victim Jessica talked about, Paige had seen him. So 
they actually reached out to her again and did like a photo lineup for her, gave her a bunch of pictures to look at, be like, this, can you take a look again type of thing. And she IDs Gary as the suspect. So at this point, they decide to execute a search warrant and sadly, nothing will come of it, which is just frustrating because I feel like that's a theme for years with this case. When they did conduct their search, they went to his home, his work locker, and then all of the vehicles he had and was in and stuff like that. And they would just take hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence, which included carpet fibers, rope, paint samples, plastic tarps, and also his financial records, but not really anything. And Gary actually didn't keep any trophies or anything like that, so I'm assuming they expected to find something like that, but no, nothing. And luckily, they did decide to take some DNA samples from Gary while they were there. It was kind of that same situation of it's still the 80s, so there really wasn't too much they could do testing-wise with it. So it essentially got put in like an evidence locker and set. And they don't think that he kept trophies or he didn't keep trophies, but they think that's what he was selling in his yard sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my thought, too. I was like, ooh, he's keeping them long enough to make a buck. Gross. And Jessica mentioned also their money for their resources was depleting quickly. And the reason for that was by 1991, they had spent $15 million on this task force. So crazy. They also had 30,000 tips in and roughly about a 1,000 evidence items, but just no answers. And since there was no answers, King County basically decided they needed to scale back even further because they just couldn't afford it. They couldn't keep spending like that to have nothing happen. So the task force went down to one detective, Tom Jensen. Now, we're going to flash forward a bit. So 2001. (laughs) In this part, I on my notes, on my original notes because I like write messy notes and then type them. I put, yay, science. (laughs) (laughs) And I do mean that. (laughs) Literally, yay, science. Yeah, obviously things have progressed so much at that point. I mean, even just even 2001, things progressed a lot from the 80s. So they decided to resubmit the DNA that they had collected from the crime scene to the Washington State Parole Crime Lab. And there was consistencies that they found and they're like, oh, fuck. So along with that, they also decided, hey, we have one of our suspects DNA still. We have Gary's. Let's uh, send that up as well. And um, no spoilers, it was match. And at this point, they were able to link four of the victims. They were able to link Maria Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Christensen. And at this point, because this was all happening, they got the task force rebanded, like, back together. And they put out surveillance on Gary while they built up the case, because if you might remember in other similar cases where it's, like, 90s slash early 2000s, that's not that long ago, DNA wasn't enough. Like now we look at it much more highly, but it was like still not enough. So they were surveilling him because they needed that nail in the coffin to get him. So they're watching him and stuff and they were hoping he'd, you know, do something. Now he did do something. He actually ended up being arrested for loitering prostitution charges on November 16th of 2001. But guess what? Of course he was let go. And uh, something to note during this, when he was being interviewed, like during his booking and stuff, he asked them to not call Judith, but he said to them, quote, you can contact the Green River Task Force. They know me real well. Gross, gross. But uh, don't fret, friends. So 
literally two weeks later on the dot, on November 30th, 2001, he was arrested at work. And essentially, when he got told all this, he just was like, oh, okay. Really reminded me with that other quote and then that reaction reminded me of BTK when he got arrested. Just very like, all right, I guess I finally am caught type of situation. Now, in terms of his murder charges, Gary was actually charged with aggravated murder in the first degree for Carol Cynthia Martian Opal. And of course, he pled not guilty. And that was on December 18th of 2001. And then a little later, on March 27th, 2003, they added three more counts of the aggravated murder in the first degree for Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes. And of course, he pled not guilty yet again at this point. But some stuff happens and his tune changes a little bit. Do you want to tell them what he did? So like Tara says, he pleads not guilty because let's be real. What person is really just going to be like, I did it. So, I mean, if I were prosecutors or this task force, I'd be like, Gary has a way of getting out of shit. Literally at this point, they've been trying to find him for like 19 years. They picked him up on the radar at 82. It's now 2001. They're like, how do I get this guy? So they basically say, if you confess and then help us locate the bodies of these missing women, because some of the people that Tara mentioned, they had not found the bodies for. Mm -hmm. We won't seek the death penalty. We'll only give you life. Well, like Tara said, he is BTK vibes all the way, which technically it was before BTK got caught. So Mm -hmm. BTK had Green River Killer vibes. Flip that script. Yeah. And he just sat down and they did hundreds of hours of interviews with him. And he confessed in detail to the murders how he did it, why he did it. He told them like what he would do is he would take them out in his truck. He had like a camper shell type thing on it. And because at first, before Judith lived with him, he killed a lot of the girls in his home. Mm -hmm. And he would bring them back to the house. And if they didn't want that, then he'd go out to the woods. But like one of the things Judith said when she moved in is he didn't have carpet or really furniture or anything. He had a bed, which he killed most of those girls in. And... He said he would wake up at night when he and Judith first lived that lived together and he would just be like haunted by the things that he did in that bed. Now Judith, the woman he loves, his wife is laying next to him. Mm. Well, good. He should be haunted by it. Right. It's so weird when like serial killers show their human side. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you're a person, not a monster. But you're still a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But like I said, he would lure them out in his truck. He'd get them to go out into the camper. He would make them take off all their clothes. And then he would basically like spend time with them in like the transition going from like oral sex to missionary. And then he'd be taking so long. Sex work is more about like quantity and not quality for pay. And he would basically be like, I can finish faster if we do a doggy style, which when I was watching the documentary, he got to this point and clearly he wanted to be like doggy style, but he realized it's a legit documentary. (laughs) And he like thinks he goes from the rear entrance. (laughs) And then I was like, no, no, that's worse. (laughs) Sorry, back to serious moment. But so essentially he would get them into that vulnerable position And then as soon as he would finish, he would essentially attack them and wrap his forearm around their throat. And he would lie to them and say, if you don't fight, I'll let you go. 
it was said that Marie Malvar was like the one who fought back the most. She fought like hell. She actually scratched him so much that he put battery acid on the scar or the scratches so that if people looked at it, they wouldn't think he got scratched. They would think he had some sort of accident at work. I know that they say like as a kid, he had learning disabilities because he only had like a IQ of like 82. But somewhere along the line, this man developed a very sophisticated, very well thought out plan. And I don't know if it's because it was really simple, which was kill, dispose, cover up versus like having a really big MO or pattern. Mm -hmm. He would kill and then try to get rid of as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. So I think that worked in his favor. And also like you have to think about it. This is the age of when serial killers were like really prolific in the world. I like that people say that millennials are ruining the world, but we don't have that many serial killers. Just saying. (laughs) True. So the other thing that like during this time, they have Gary talking to these FBI agents and police. He's confessing to people that they're not asking about. And then he doesn't go too in depth because they basically have like a few that they're accusing him of basically get to like 48 They were going to get seven. And now with this deal, they're getting 48. The other stipulation is that he has to go out and help find these bodies. So he does. The interesting thing is people are like, he's so cold because you watch him in these vans and he's on a field trip from prison. Like, oh, here, there. And it's like, I mean, he's a serial killer who went back to his victims. This is the ultimate going back to your victims. But also... He did spend a lot of time with a forensic psychologist. No, it was not Dr. Phil. <laughs> so when the forensic psychologist was like talking to him about it, right, they really dove deep into like the root of what caused it. And they basically mapped out what caused his love map to get so fucked up that he would have such anger at prostitutes and We talked about this in the first episode. It's you take his domineering mother who completely 100% emasculates his father, emasculates him, emasculates pretty much anyone who isn't her oldest son. And then you put into the fact that she's so provocative, like the way she would dress was very provocative. She wasn't wearing mom jeans. Let's put it that way. You know, she was wearing like short shorts and skimpy bathing suits. And she would often sit out and sunbathe. And when she would sit out and sunbathe, Gary would watch her. And he would have these like sexual fantasies about his mother. Because when you think about Gary Ridgway's first sexual experience... It's one of those nights when his mom is like washing his genitals and her robe opens up and she's naked under it. And he's a 13 year old boy. Like he's talking about this with this forensic psychologist. And it's like you can see him really thinking about this moment and the confusion on him. If you're a 13 year old boy, boobs are everything. From what I could tell. I have two brothers. They seem boobs were everything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you have this woman who is his maternal figure, but she's touching his private part while exposing her. Like, I don't know if she was intentionally exposing herself, but like she was scantily clad. And I'm not, I'm not slut shaming here. I'm not saying like you can't wear revealing clothes or whatever. That's your prerogative. But like, I'm going to say this and don't get it fucking twisted. When it comes to your kids, you should not be touching their private parts while you're naked. You can at me if you want, but that just makes you creepy. 
during these times where like healthy psyche kids are developing crushes and kissing their crushes for the first time and, you know, really getting into these like who you are and discovering who you are sexually. Not saying that you have to have sex, but like the first acts of sex in your love map aren't necessarily intercourse. And to have someone humiliate him on top of that, have his father be emasculated, hate prostitutes, yell about them, and then use them, which had to be confusing, on top of the fact that his father was like worked at a mortician place, a mortician, and come home and talk about necrophilia like it was some fucking normal thing. Like, hey, guess what I did at work today? I watched my coworker have sex with a dead corpse. And oh, could you pass the potatoes? When you sit down and you go, how did Gary Ridgway end up killing what he says to be over 71 women? I watched a documentary. It was like born to kill. Gary Ridgway was not born to kill. Gary Ridgway was created to kill. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's so important. If you think that some child is being sexually assaulted, humiliated, abuse is happening, you need to say something. It's better to have that friend not like you anymore because you stood up and said something than to literally be like, oh shit. And I can I can say that coming from someone who is a victim of like childhood sexual abuse. Like I can say that. So say something because the kids aren't going to say shit. So when he's talking to this psychiatrist or the psychologist, she's really drilling down about this. She's like, tell me how this made you feel. And he would talk about watching his mom in the backyard and how she would like take her bra off to like suntan, you know, and like wear skimpy clothes and stuff like that. And so he had these like sexual fantasies about her because she was his first sexual encounter with the whole touching of the genitalia while being exposed. And then the abuse and the anger and the bitterness and like the making him feel stupid and that stuff. He went from like wanting to have sex with his mom to wanting to kill his mom all within the same thought process. Mm-hmm. And when you look at serial killers, you often look at who the victims are really trying to, who are they a surrogate for? Yeah. And it was for his mom. And then you take in the fact that Claudia left him for another guy. There was rumors that she actually was a sex worker at some point in time. You take the fact that a fiance left him for another man. He's constantly rejected by women up until he gets to Judith. And Judith just loves and accepts him. I mean, she doesn't know about this stuff. Or if she does, she's being complicit and looking the other way. But from the interviews, I could see that wasn't really the case. Yeah, I don't think she knew. Mm -mm. She, in retrospect, I watched a documentary where she thought back to like times. He would be like, well, I'm coming home late today. I got to go do this errand. I'm just going to grab a cheeseburger and I'll meet you. I'll see you at home later. And she's like, was that one of the times? Or like he called and was like, I'm going to this thrift store. I'm going to go do this. And she's like, could this have been? Or no, he said that he was going to go to a scrapyard and he came home without any parts when I watched her say that, she's like, could that have been a time? I'm like, how was that not a red flag? Like my first question would have been to my husband is what did you buy? Nothing. You were gone a long time. Mm -hmm. So he's talking to the authorities and he's telling them and he's showing them where these women are buried and they're overwhelmed by it. So he ends up being convicted of 48 charges. Like Tara said, of aggravated murder. And then there's some that he won't say he did. 
but they think he did. So there were 22 women that he didn't confess to, or a lot of it was that he may have confessed, but they had no, like, they couldn't find. Mm -hmm. He definitely 100% confirmed that he killed 49 and confessed to them, but they could only do 48 because they couldn't identify for sure who she was. Which is stupid because they had Jane Doe's. Right. And again, like, th- there's this big controversy about how Gary talks about the- these women. And he basically says that he looked at them as disposable, like trash. And people were like, how can he do this? Look at, like, how he was taught that his father is screaming at him that they're worthless and they're whores. And serial killers don't look at humans or other people as people. They look at them as act they do to a thing that brings them intense pleasure. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it like that, he killed so many women because of that. He didn't know who they were. Being realistic, how many sex workers use their real name when someone picks them up? They don't because they want to have some sort of anonymity around it. They don't want some guy to be able to like Google their name and stalk them after work. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot. There's 49 names. Well, there's 46 names. Three are Jane Doe's. And that's also heartbreaking because, like Tara mentioned, one of the Jane Doe's that he confessed to killing, it was that span they didn't know when. It was like 20 years. Like, that's so long. I know. So he went to court. He had to do, like, the the plea. And so he did his plea deal. And he signed it in court. And the prosecution was not nice. They brought up a lot of his shit because I don't necessarily know if... I think they were trying to bully him out of it. I don't get it. They offered it, but they were mean, but he kind of deserved it. And so he was sentenced on December 18th, 2003. And again, 48 counts of aggravated murder. And he received 48 consecutive life sentences, not congruent, consecutive. So even if Gary Ridgway were to have had parole, he would be like paroled, but then like, because obviously it's life without possibility of parole. He would just be serving another one. Mm-hmm. But something interesting on top of that, he got 10 years for all 48 counts for basically it's something like falsifying evidence or tampering with evidence. So that's an additional 480 years. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is the amount of people who spoke up for the victims at his sentencing. It was like basically almost every family had someone there. And most of them were like, we hate you. You took someone from us. How could you do this? Like one person said that she wanted him to die a very slow and painful death. One guy was like, I hope someone chokes you out so you know what they went through. So it's like a lot of hate, which I get because they lost a loved one because he killed them. But I bring this up because the very surprising one was Robert Rule and his daughter was 16-year-old Linda Rule, who Gary had killed. And he had a very different message. He started off by saying that he wanted to hate Gary, but he couldn't. And that he forgave Gary. And Gary was very, like, stone-faced stoic throughout this whole process. And people are always like, why, when the serial killers get into court and they're pleading guilty, do they just stand there stone-faced? It's like, dude, they're literally, like, making, they're signing away their whole life. They're choosing not to fight. If they were weepy, we'd be like, why are they crying? They're guilty. So, like, they don't really have much of a choice other than to just stand there and accept what they did. I think he was a little different in the aspect that he didn't necessarily like through the plea. It's a little different than BTK because like BTK confessed everything in court, whereas like Gary was very behind the scenes recorded 
So basically the judge read to him all of the charges and like how each person was killed. And then he would like say guilty. And then yes, if you watched uh, any of the Golden State Killer stuff, it's kind of like that. And then, like I said, the families talked and then Robert Rule was just like, he said he forgave him and Gary started to cry. And I think this was like, this is something that hit me. It was like probably the first time outside of like Judith or maybe his son that somebody gave Gary a fuck, if that makes sense. Someone was like, you did this horrible thing to me, but I'm willing to forgive you. Gary got up and he made his statement and he cried through it and he he apologized and he didn't make excuses. He could have been like, my mom abused me, all these things. No, he just apologized and hoped for forgiveness and whatnot. And so then he was sentenced and then he went to live his life in prison. But that's not done for Gary because on December 21st of 2010, another victim was found and her name was Rebecca Morello. She went by Becky. And her body was found. And on February 7th of 2011, he was charged with aggravated murder in connection to her killing. And then February 18th, he pled guilty to it. So that added an extra life sentence. But (laughs) Gary didn't stay out of the news because here we are in 2020 and fucking COVID has taken over. And wouldn't you know, our buddy Gary is back in the limelight. Because like many states, you know, they were having to look at their prison population because essentially prisons are breeding grounds for pandemics. That's why like in the olden times, disease ran rampant. So COVID is a thing. So a lot of states were looking at their nonviolent offenders to release. So like probably people who solicited prostitutes, probably people who, I don't know, accidents like hit and runs or stuff like that. Who knows? Drug charges, those kind of things to release them. And somehow Gary's name ended up on a list. Now, I laugh because you know that's probably a clerical error. They probably typed in another person's prison number and transposed it. But it got people very upset because they were like, how did his name end up on a list to be released because of COVID? I mean, I said this to Tara, like if he got out, like he would get out, go get a prostitute and kill. Like he's not going to waste time. Mm -hmm. But I'd hope by then people would be like, oh, I know his face. Yeah. So Gary got his time in the limelight because of that. This was definitely an interesting case because it's not what I thought it was. I honestly thought he was killing a lot earlier because I always thought he was killing at the same time Bundy was killing. Right. Because of the involvement, like, and they're paralleled and stuff and being from Washington and all that. Right. I mean, Gary could have been killing. We may never know. True. He picked a very vulnerable population to kill from because a lot of sex workers are runaways and are undocumented, not in the fact that they're illegal immigrants, but undocumented in the fact that, like, we don't know who they are. He didn't pick the savvy sex worker that had been out there for a while. He somehow had this way of honing in on, like, the newbies. So that is going to wrap it up for us. And we will see you back here on Thursday for a stabby. Bye. Bye. Bye.